We're going to continue with the book of Revelation. Amen? And we will start our fourth topic of Revelation. Next week we'll do the fifth, and then in the month of April we'll continue and try to end this uh, series. We've been... Uh, Actually, you know, as I look at how we've done this, we've been advancing in leaps and bounds. <laughs> We're in chapter 7 already, okay? So uh, let's open our Bibles to chapter 7 of Revelation. Of course, the main topic is Revelation, a message of what? Hope, of hope. But today's topic, the title is The Seal of God and the 144,000. So let's go ahead and start reading at verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And what were they doing? They were holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, you know, where the sun comes out, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Now, the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed, and, and so on and so forth. And we see how from each tribe, 10,000, uh, 12,000 are sealed. So here we have a parenthesis. Right before the seventh seal, right between the sixth and the seventh seal that we had studied uh, last time, we have this parenthesis, the sealing of the 144,000. Now, I believe that this number is symbolic, like most of the numbers in the book of Revelation. You know, we studied it on my first topic. We, we found out what, you know, in the Hebrew culture and their mindset, what number one means, number two, number three, number four. You know, so it, it was more than numbers. They had meanings, okay? And so here we have the number 12, which is also symbolic. It's a symbol of God's people. So in the Old Testament, how were God's people represented by the 12 what? The 12 tribes. And how was the children of God or the people of God represented in the New Testament? The 12 apostles, okay? And you, you can recall that when Judas hung himself, they, they rushed to, to find a, a replacement because of the number 12 it had a very special meaning. So how do we get to 144,000? Okay, so if we multiply 12 times 12, we have 144. And then if we multiply that by 1,000, we have 144,000. In other words, this, this, this number... God's people in the Old and New Testament, the number itself is talking about multiplicity. Multiplicity. It talks about a big, big crowd. So it's a symbolic number. In Revelation, we have a literary technique that in theology is called hear and see. And we see that through the book of Revelation. In, in, in the first chapter that we studied a few weeks ago, uh, John hears and then he sees. And, and that's repeated in the book of Revelation in, in, different, in different topics. Uh, we can uh, go to John chapter 1, verse 10. It says, I was in the spirit of the, in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But then if you go, uh, if you just move a little bit further down the chapter, you know, in, in verse 9, it's talking about he hears something. 
But then if we go to verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lamps. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. And then it talks about how he was clothed and, and his feet and, and his chest and, and so on and so forth. So we have this principle here, which is first John hears something. And then he sees something, and they're totally related. It's actually the same, the same thing. And so we see this here in chapter 7. So he hears the number of the sealed, and then in verse 9, it says, I looked and saw a great multitude, the redeemed. Because it says here, there are like the sand of the sea. Remember the promise to Abraham? Okay. And so here we see a perfect picture that includes all the saved from all times, a big crowd that no one can count. So 144,000 basically just represents that no one that should be among the redeemed will be missing. Amen? So let's analyze the chapter. So let's, 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 let's see what the chapter is talking about. So we see here in verses 1 to 3, four angels, which we will call the, the angels of destruction, then there's another angel that tells them not to destroy the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. So this is before the last plagues that will fall upon, upon the earth. So here we have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. Another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And so here we're talking about protection. I, I, I love this because the seal of God on the redeemed is to protect them, and in this specific case, to protect them from the last events of the seven last plagues that will fall on this earth. But what does a seal represent? Like, like if you go to a, a government office, and they're going to extend you a letter, and they put a seal on that letter, it's basically stating that that letter is legitimate, that that is official. And that the person that is signing and putting the seal on there is the one in charge. So the same thing with, with this seal. We have to understand what it represents. So in Bible times, and even today, like I just mentioned, you get a seal from official uh, office or a government uh, department. is saying that that letter is coming from them. It's, it's, they're the one in charge. So... Uh, let, let's see what the seals mean. So we have three meanings for the seal in the Bible. Property or ownership. So let, let's, let's study a little bit about this. How, how do you feel when the Bible says that you belong to God? Oh, feels good, right? So, so here we have something that is very important. Like even today, if you go, like here Texas has a lot of ranches. I mean, you can travel in different places in Texas. You see a lot of ranches with a lot of cows will notice that those cows have what? A seal. They've been branded, okay, with a hot iron. And so that whatever symbol they put on there, all the other neighbors know that that cow belongs to that specific ranch, to that specific person, okay? So the seal represents ownership. It means that it's someone else's property. For example, the slaves... And, of course, we're talking about uh, John's time where the Roman Empire had a lot of slaves. I mean, you could see slaves everywhere. It was part of the economic system of Rome. They had slaves everywhere. And you could see them walking once in a while, you know, sometimes carrying heavy loads or, or doing something for their masters. But they were always with a seal right here on their forehead. They had the name of the owner. 
So everyone knew that that person was a slave and belonged to somebody. Of course, that was probably shameful for them <laughs> to carry that, that seal, but it was a mark that was stating that that slave belonged to a specific person. Now, the Roman soldiers also. It's interesting when you read it in, in, in history, you'll see that they either uh, had a seal here on the forearm or on their wrist of the army they belonged to, the Roman army. Of course, they would carry that with a lot of pride, <laughs> that, 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 that seal, that mark, that tattoo. You know, they, they would carry that with a lot of pride. And sometimes they would even have the name of their commander on there, you know, what division that they, they belonged to. So they would carry that with, with pride. Well, God wants to seal us so that the world can know that we belong to him. What else does the seal mean? So let's, let's see what else the seal means. So there's another meaning, covenant or commitment. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about this. So the worshipers, and this has been throughout history. I mean, you can go back way to uh, Noah's time and, and, and after Noah's time and, and just all through the Bible. We'll see how the worshipers of pagan gods engraved in their bodies the image of their gods. Sometimes it could be represented by an animal or, or, or a constellation or, or just many different things. But it was a sign of covenant or commitment, especially among the, the Persians. It was interesting because the mom would take her newborn baby to that god, which a god of stone or an image or whatever, and she would make a promise that if that god would protect her child, that child would be committed to worshiping that god. And so they would literally put either a tattoo or they would brand that god on that baby. Most of the time, it was like on, on, on the leg. And so everyone knew that that baby belonged to that God. And, well, that was not a good thing, of course, because uh, that type of covenant or commitment, of course, the only true God is the God of heaven. Okay? So the, in the heathen gods, we had this. So, so since we do know the real God, we can say that our God wants to protect us from the final destruction. So that's the, that's the second meaning of the seal. God wants to protect us from the final destruction. Now we have a third, a third meaning of the seal. So here we have similarity or reproduction of character. We have talked about this in the past in some of the sermons that we preached here and, and actually in this series that the name had a deeper meaning. When the Jews would put a name to their child, it's because it represented something that they wanted to develop in that child's character. So it was more, more than just a name. Today, we just put a name because it's pretty, because <laughs> it, it sounds nice, okay? But no, in those days, it was a, a sign of reproduction of character. God wants his character to be reproduced in us, okay? So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So let, let, let's see here. So Revelation 7:3, the seal goes where? On the forehead. Why on the forehead? Well, you know, if you go to uh, the Bible and also to modern psychology, you can study what is called the frontal lobe, <laughs> okay? So it's that, it's that, that place right here in, our, in, our, in the front of our brain where we, our conscience is the only place that God can talk to us, that he can reveal his, his, his will to us, is where he communicates with, with, with us as human beings. So the way we look at someone, the words we say, the actions we perform should reflect God's character. So that's why it's here in the forehead, right? So let, let's see what else it says here. Revelation 14.1 says the name of God and the Lamb is what remains on the forehead. So if it's the name of God and the Lamb, it's his character. It's God's 
character. And how is God's character? Well, the Bible says he's love, he's joy, he's peace, he's tolerance, he's kindness. You will see in your face, in your name, the character of God. So here we have something that is very important. God wants his character to be reproduced in us. In us. Now, with that being said, let, let's talk a little bit more about the seal in Revelation chapter 7. So, who or what is the sealing agent? The Holy Spirit. We're going to look this up in the Bible, of course. We're not just going to share my opinion. It's what the Bible says. So, the sealing agent is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Then we have the instrument for sealing. You know what the instrument is? The Ten Commandments. And then the mark that is impressed upon the person that is sealed is the character of God. So let's, let's break it down. So the sealing agent, we said is what? Or who? God, the Holy Spirit. So here we have Ephesians 4.30 that says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the Holy Spirit is the agent. Then we have the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that we see as the instrument to seal us. So here we have this beautiful Bible verse in Isaiah 8.16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among who? Among my disciples. So if you're a disciple of God, you will receive the seal of God through the Holy Spirit. And that seal is the Ten Commandments. Okay? And what is the mark that is impressed? What is the mark that is impressed? The character of God. Beloved. We are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the purpose of God is to, to imprint in us the image of God as we move along in our Christian life. So when Jesus comes, we will be like him. Isn't that amazing? So the character of God is what is impressed in each one of us. So the more we contemplate Jesus, what's going to happen? like him right so there, there's a law called the law of contemplation it, it, it's like these young people you know they, they follow these these hollywood idols right and so they have posters in their in their bed you know what i'm talking about so they have all these posters in their bedroom of of either a, a, a sport uh, uh an athlete that's outstanding and they want to you know just follow what this person does in his life and, and if it's a hollywood star from the movies you know they have all these things and it's interesting because it comes to a point when this young person Starts dressing like that person. Starts walking like that person. Starts talking like that person. Actually, they don't talk about anything else but that person. You know, all of a sudden, their, their, their haircut, you know, is just like that person. <laughs> because by contemplating, we are transformed. Okay, so, so it's very important that we understand this. The more we contemplate Jesus, the more we will be like him. Now, let's pay very close attention to the topic of the tribes that are mentioned there in Revelation chapter 7. So, uh, in verse 5, you know, that's where, that's where it starts. So, there's some questions that came to my mind when I read this, because who was the eldest son of Jacob, or of Israel, when he had his name changed? Okay, but in the book of Revelation, who is first? Whoa, whoa, whoa why is that? Why is that? And then we actually have some name changes. We have someone that does not appear. And we have someone that takes that person's place. So, so, so let's study this. So first of all, I just want to let you know that uh, the different order and, and the other differences that are named, the name that, that doesn't appear is Dan, of course. Uh, Manasseh appears instead. 
But the order has to do with the meaning of the names. The meanings of the name. Jesus is like giving a welcome speech to the redeemed. So, so let's just imagine that it's time for the redeemed to go into heaven. So what's the first thing you have to do to get into heaven? Because you have to go through the gate. Right? You have to go through the gate. So that's why Jude appears first. So let's just imagine this as a song or a welcome speech from Jesus. So here we go. You guys ready? So let's go with the first one that's mentioned there. So Judah, his name means praise. And Isaiah 6018 says that we, the redeemed will enter through the do doors called praise. So Jesus is opening the door, and how are we going to go in? Praising God for what he has done for us, okay? So Jesus opens the door and says, welcome, come on in. Yeah, welcome to heaven. Then we have Reuben, behold a son. So when, when Leah had her firstborn, you know what she called him? Behold a son. Behold a son. And we know who the son is, the real legitimate son is Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, come on in, behold the son, Jesus Christ. So the redeemed are there because of Jesus. Then we have Gad. Of course, it's not just a few here and a few there. No, no. We're talking about an army. Actually, the, the name Gad also means multitude. So here we have not just one, but a huge crowd of redeemed from all the ages going into heaven. This is amazing. That's why it says a crowd or a great multitude that could not be counted. Okay. Now, now let's see the next name. So here's Jesus saying, hey, welcome army. Welcome all these, uh, this crowd. And how do you think we're going to go into heaven? Oh, we're not just dragging our feet. Man, it was a long, long journey. No, we're going to go in happy. You know, Jesus says, you know what? Welcome to heaven. And so the name Asher means happy. So we're going to be happy children of God going into heaven. Then we have Nephtali, contender. Oh, yes, we have fought the good fight. We have run the race. We have kept the faith. So, yes, here we have each one of us as contenders. Jesus says, come on in. You have fought against evil. You have contended in prayer. You have been faithful. Welcome to heaven. Then we have Manasseh. Forget. The only way we're going to get to heaven is if we forget about ourselves and start thinking more about God. And leave our selfishness aside and the grievings and the wrongdoings that people have done to us, of course. Then we have Simeon here. And you know why we're there? Jesus is going to say, you're here because you heard the word of God. That's why you're here. And you tended to the word of God. Then we have Levi. Join. And they joined him. So we are joining Jesus in heaven because we are also of the tribe of Levi. And then we have Issachar. Reward. Well, the Bible says that when Jesus comes, it's because he's going to reward us. So we're getting our reward. And Jesus is saying, come on into heaven. I'm giving you the reward that I told you about. I promised you that you were going to get a reward. And here it is. Then we have Sebalun. Dwell. Oh, it's not going to be just for one day. Not for a week. Not for a month. Not for 10,000 years. We're going to live with Jesus forever and ever. So that's why the names of these tribes are mentioned because there's a deeper meaning to the word. There's a deeper meaning to the name. Then we have Joseph. Add. And we can see throughout the ages how people have been added and added to the redeemed. And, and as, as the generations came and went, more were added, more were added until Jesus' second coming. We have all been added to that group of the redeemed. 
And then we have Benjamin. Oh, son of the right hand. Remember the message to the Laodicea? Who him who overcomes, he will sit with me in my throne. Just like I have sat on my throne. And so Jesus here is just reminding us promise he already had made. So son of the right hand, as children of the right hand, we will sit on the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? That, that's, just, that's just amazing. So here we have it. As children of the right hand, we sit at the right hand of God. So this is like a welcome speech. This is like a, 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 a song of bienvenida. Okay, so let's, let, let, let's see why those names that are changed. So let, let's, let's go to this following slide so you guys can take note of this. So in Genesis 29 and 30, this is the original order of the, of the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel, right? So we have Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah. So we have these. In Numbers, we have the mention of the names as they received their inheritance. So the Levites did not receive anything, right? Because they were to serve as the religious leaders and the teachers of God's people. So they did not receive inheritance. So that's why their name does not appear. So Levi does not appear. But then we do have some changes. For example, we have at the end, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were sons of Joseph, they did receive inheritance. You can see that in the Bible right there in Numbers chapter 1 and, and of course, Benjamin. But then in Revelation, we find some changes like Reuben does appear, Simon does appear, Levi appears, Judah, but Dan does not appear. Manasseh takes his place. So that's why I have the, uh, the arrow right here. So we see how Manasseh takes the place of Dan. And then we have the rest there and Benjamin, of course. So the, 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 the question is, why is Dan not there? Well, we have to go to the Bible. Remember that the names mean character. It means character. So why is Dan removed and Manasseh takes his place? It has to do with the meaning of the name. So let, let, let's see the meaning of the name here. So we'll start with Dan. It means to judge. But the real meaning of the Hebrew word means to criticize. Okay? It means to accuse. The Bible says when, 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 when Jacob gives his final prophecy about all his sons in, in, in Genesis 49, he says, and shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backwards. So Dan represents those that do the work of Satan. And who is Satan? The accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. And there's people that love that. There's people that love to point the finger. There's people that love to go around with gossip. It's people that love to talk bad about other people where they're from the tribe of Dan. And like I see here in the Bible, there's not going to be anyone from that tribe in heaven. Okay. So the other question is why Manasseh takes Dan's place and not Ephraim? Because Joseph had two sons. So why not Ephraim? Well, it has to do with the meaning of the name. The name means fruitful or promising. But look what the Bible says about him. He, he, you know, have you noticed some of those kids <laughs> that are very talented? And they can just do a lot of stuff. Either may it be sports or, or, or speech or, or math. Or, but they're just outstanding kids in something or, or in several things. But what happens when a parent, when a mom, thinks that his kid is the last wonder of this world, the last Coca-Cola in the desert, and she thinks she's the hen 
the mom of all the chicks, and, and, and spoils the kid. And he ends up all messed up and not fulfilling what God's plan was for his life. And, and that happens very often. So, so here we have what happens. So we have Hosea 12.1 says that Ephraim feeds on the wind. He was just full of pride, ambition, always boastful about whatever he was doing. So he feeds on the wind. You know people like that? You know, there's full of pride. Hosea 7 eight says, cake not turn. So, so what would happen if you guys put a bread in a toaster and only one side lights? You know, the, the, little, the little coils that, that turn red and, the, and then they toast your bread and the other side's not working. Well, that was Ephraim. He was a hypocrite. He was a hypocrite. Okay? He was a deception. I mean, you take that bread out and you say, what happened here? <laughs> okay. Hosea 4.17 is given to idols, so he committed apostasy. That tribe left God's plan. That's, that's why there's not going to be any Ephronites or, or Danites in, in heaven. Okay. So, so it's imp important that we, we understand this. So Ephraim does not appear. Instead, we see Manasseh. So, so who comes to complete the painting? Manasseh. And can we have the character of Manasseh? Let, let's see what Manasseh means. So Manasseh, Manasseh, let's see if we can have it here. So, well, there's no Danites or Ephronites like I was saying. So, so let just make, allow me to make this very clear. If you're going around accusing the brethren, if you're pointing to their mistakes, if you're talking back about folks, you better change tribes. There are no Danites in heaven. But also, if, if you're full of pride and arrogance and, and think too much of yourself, you better change tribes. There's no Ephronites either. But why Manasseh? So let, let's see why Manasseh is, is there. So Manasseh means to forget. That's what the word means. So we need to learn how to forget the wrongs, the offenses, and enter among the sealed. I know people do us wrong. I know there's injustice. I know we have been victims of abuse or different circumstances in life. But you have to be like Manessa. The character of Manessa is to forgive, to let go. You can't keep holding a grudge against that person. You can't keep track of the faults that others have committed. So we must be like Manessa. Don't hold grudges. Don't hold on to resentments. So, so all of this, if you guys are following me, all of this tells me that this is a symbolic number. I don't know if, if you're with me or not, but this is telling me this is a symbolic number. I know there's, there's some scholars that believe it's a little number, a literal number. Some even believe that this is a, a, a group of persons, maybe not uh, literal, it might be symbolic, but it's a group of people that during the loud cry will be called to a special mission and that these people that are sealed are different from the other folks that are going to be saved. And, and so there's different lines of interpretation. But I, what I see here, this, this, is, this is all symbolic. Okay? God wants to teach us a lesson. And the lesson is, how are you building your character? Okay? So, so let's, let's go on with the topic. So we, we did say a little bit about, about the law of God. So what the, the name means? 
Okay, let's see if we can have this up here. So yeah, it's the character of God. And then of course, God is? Can't hear you. God is? All right, God is love. And the love of God is manifested in his law. And so we've taught this for many years, so I'm not saying anything new, but when we love God, what's going to happen? We're going to obey the first four commandments. Jesus said it, that all the prophets, the law and the prophets, all depend on two great commandments. Love God and love your fellow men. So here we have, if you love God, you're not going to have other gods before him. If you love God, you're not going to create images to try to worship God instead of worshiping him directly, you know, have some type of images. And then, of course, the third commandment, you're not going to be making fun of God or offending God with your words and actions. And, of course, the, the Sabbath commandment. I mean, that's awesome because that's a day to relate to God in a special way. And then, of course, we have the next commandment, that's love for others. So everything starts in the family. <laughs> so I love the way God put all this together. You know, everything starts in the family. So honor your father and your mother. They're, they're your closest neighbors. And so uh, honor your father and your mother. And, of course, if you love others, well, you're not going to you're gonna, you're not gonna kill them, man. You're gonna respect life, and then uh, don't commit adultery. You're gonna respect their things, you know, the eighth commandment, and then you're not gonna be talking bad or making lies about. You're not gonna be a Danite, and <laughs> and then you're not gonna covet other people's things. So, the Bible tells us that the law is love, because God is love. The law is a manifestation of his character. The Bible says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Now, Psalm 19 is just amazing. I, I, I love Psalm 19 because it tells us more about, about the law of God. So in blue, I have here the different terms that are used in the Old Testament to refer to the Ten Commandments. So we have here, for example, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. So these are our titles given to the Ten Commandments. So the law of God, the law of the Lord, the testimony of God, etc. Then we have in black the characteristics of God's law. It says it is what? It is perfect. It is sure. They are right. It's pure, clean, true, righteous altogether. So here we have the characteristics of God's law. And then we have in green what happens when you keep God's law. So I love this. I mean, this is a beautiful poem, a beautiful song. So it says, Converting the soul. Wow. Making wise the simple. Rejoicing the heart. Enlightening the eyes. And of course, it's an experience that should last forever. Obedience should be an experience that should last forever. Now, at the end, I put this. I, I did separate it because I think this part in orange here uh, is important because it says, to be desired, are they then gold, yea, then much fine gold. So this is the value of God's law. It should be very valuable to you. But also, it should be a great, satisfying experience to obey because it says that it's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. <laughs> wow. So that so that's what that's what the uh, so that's what the, uh, the 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 Bible is saying there in Psalm 19. Of course, you know if we go back to what's going on in our world, most churches don't have problem with nine of these commandments that that we're talking about. They mostly have problem with one commandment. That's the Sabbath commandment. Now I do want to let you know I did a little bit of research this week and and, and I just wanted to see if I could find something on on that regard because as I prepared the sermon. 
several weeks ago, I found out that, that there is a day, I think it's in May somewhere, where Protestant churches celebrate the Ten Commandments Day. And so I did some research and I found out that some of the most famous televangelists in this country are part of that committee. It's called the Committee of the Ten Commandments. And so they're saying the Ten Commandments are valid. We got to keep the Ten Commandments, but you got to keep God's holy day, Sunday. Now we have a problem. Now we have a problem. But I'm talking about Haggy there in San Antonio. We're talking about uh, Robert Robertson. Uh, we're talking about just huge names out there that are not teaching that the, the Ten Commandments have been abolished. So, so, so as I was talking with my wife when we were preparing this, this sermon, Satan is so crafty. Look, look how he's doing it. He's saying, okay, yeah, the Ten Commandments, you got to keep them. But Sabbath has been replaced for Sunday. So, so you know, we got to be careful. So let, let, let's go on and see uh, about God and, and, and his character and the law. So the Bible says that God is love, but the Bible says that the law is love. The Bible says that God is just, the law is just. God is perfect, the law is perfect. And, and I like that part that says the law is perfect because if something is perfect, can you modify it? Because, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church decided to try to improve the Ten Commandments. And all they did was mess it up. Because they took the Second Commandment out, totally, about image worship. So now we have the First Commandment. Okay, don't have other gods. We have the second commandment that says don't mess around with God's name. Then we have the third commandment. Go to mass, you know, go, go, you know follow the, the rituals of the church. Actually, in today's catechism, it says keep the Holy Sabbath. And then there's a little parenthesis that says Sunday. Okay? And so what they do to have the ten, because now they took one out, they divided the tenth in two, and then they say don't covet your neighbor's wife and then don't covet the rest of his stuff so they divided the covet into two but the bible says that the law of god is perfect like god is perfect you can't make it better you can't modify it and make it better every time human beings try to make something better that god has already made perfect we just mess it up god is eternal the law is eternal god is good the law is good now it's believed that there are over 35 million precepts or, 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 or laws to control human behavior. So people that have studied this, you know, they've gone back in cultures and, and nations. And, and so there's about 35 million laws to control human behavior. And God says, no, I only need 10. <laughs> Isn't God so practical? <laughs> I only need 10. That's it. That's it. You know, there was this doctor that, that got baptized when, in one of the churches, and his wife was just so upset because, you know, of course, they were making good money and and they had other plans in life. And he became a Christian, a very good missionary. And he left, actually, uh, to practice in medicine to dedicate himself more to God. And, and, and he put another business. But she's like, oh, it's terrible that you became a, a commandment-keeping person because God just expects you to do too much. And he says, no, just 10 things. Just, just 10. <laughs> just 10. And God, of course, wrote the commandments with his own finger. Now, Jesus, did he respect the Ten Commandments? Well, what did he say about the Ten Commandments? So here we say in Matthew 5, 17, 18, Do not think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to 
Oh, yeah. So he was a, a, a commandment-keeping person. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. So what, what, what was the jot? Someone remembers what the jot was? You know what the jot was? Okay, so it's, it's the 10th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's the smallest letter of all. The smallest of all the letters in the, in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. Then the tittle, it's even, it's even smaller because, like, let's say, there's, let's say you do a number seven. Let's just, just do an example. So you do a seven and you just do one, one line, seven. But what happens if you decide to do two lines? So you go this way and then this way. What probably is going to happen, there's going to be a little extension to the seven, right? All right? Well, there's letters in Hebrew that have a little extension that make them different from the other letter. And it's just a little tiny, weeny extension to the letter. Jesus says, well, not even the smallest letter of the alphabet or not even the smallest extension of a letter in the alphabet will be changed of God's law. Amazing. Now, Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, is the law of God the foundation for our salvation? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding when we get to this point. <laughs> Are we saved by keeping God's law? I mean, is that the way to win our salvation? Of course not. You know, we, we have to remember that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way to be saved. So we don't obey the Ten Commandments to be saved. We obey them because we have been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, now, let, let, let's see what else we have here. The Bible says, for by grace you are what? Saved by what? Through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. So even faith is a gift, so you can't even credit that to yourself. Because God is the one that puts you in you the desire to obey and also gives you the capacity to obey. So, uh, so faith is even a gift. So this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Now, do you think that grace leads us to disobey? Just because he has given us grace? No, grace compels us and empowers us to obey out of thankfulness for God's great salvation. That's why Hebrews says, please don't despise such a great salvation. Okay, so grace compels us and empowers us for obedience. So there's, there's four elements that I want to talk to you about as far as what intervenes in our salvation. For our, first of all, the grace of God is the fountain of our salvation. Sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf is the fountain of of our salvation. Faith is the method to accomplish our salvation because while you don't accept or believe that Jesus died for you, it's no good. You have to have faith that that really happened and that atonement was made and that forgiveness is for real. So faith is the method to accomplish our salvation. Number three, the blood of Jesus is the means of our salvation. If Jesus would not have shed his blood, salvation literally would be impossible. And obedience, and I love this, Obedience to the Ten Commandments is the result of a saved person. That's why we obey, because we have been saved through grace. Well, but doesn't the Bible say that we're not under the law anymore, but under grace? Huh? The Bible says that we are not under the law, but under grace. So what, what, what does that mean? Well, to be under 
The law means to be under the condemnation of the law. In other words, whoever is under the law is the one who has transgressed the law. Let, let, let's put an example here, a simple example. Okay, because I think we've all been through this. <laughs> a traffic violation. Okay, so, so this literally happened to me. So I was driving. I was in a rush to get back, to, back home. I was at the conference in another city. And so I was driving, you know, back home, and I was in a rush. And, yeah, I didn't see that motorcycle. <laughs> you know who was on that motorcycle. Yeah. So I got stopped. And, of course, this is in Mexico where you can suborn, you, you know, you can give a mordida. Okay? And there's no mordida for salvation. You can't give, a, you know, you can't bribe God, you know. So he said, uh, we can fix this. So with my license, I gave him a... Uh, 500 so bill, which in those days was a good amount of money. I think he'll be happy with this. And then he said something that made me change my mind. He said, so don't be out there saying that we're corrupt as policemen. Both of us are corrupt. And I said, no way. I took my, my 500 pesos back, and I said, I'm going to the delegation. Because he said, you're not leaving without going and paying this ticket. So here we go, you know, to the police station. And so we're there at the police station. And so imagine, this, this didn't happen. This would only happen in, in Wonderland. So... Uh, you know, I'm there, and, and the, the delegate there at the police station says, well, you got to pay this. And I opened my billfold, and, and I ain't got no money, and I didn't bring my card with me, so I can't pay. Well, we're going to have to impound your car. I don't know how you're going to get back home, but the car's staying here. And the same officer that stopped me sees my anguish and takes out the 1,500 pesos, which was uh, the, the real amount of the ticket and he gives it to the delegate at the police station and says I'm paying for Nathan DeLima's fine so now I'm under grace because before I was under the law the law was condemning me I had transgressed the law that means to be under the law now I'm under grace so I go out there and I start speeding again because I'm under grace no, I'm so thankful for what this policeman did that now I'm driving home 55 miles an hour. I put my cruise, cruise control 55. 75? 75. Because okay. we're under grace now. We're under grace. So, so it's very important that we, that we understand this. So our debt was paid in, in full. And so now we have a commitment to live in total gratitude and submission out of love. Grace does not lead us to disobey, but to obey God. So, so here we have this, this, this uh, example. Right? Respecting the law we live in? Liberty. liberty. And actually, the book of James calls it that. The Ten Commandments is literally called the law of liberty. So while you obey the law, you're free. You're free. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? What then? Shall we sin? Shall I still be speeding because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. God forbid. I am under grace. What does that mean? It means I accept God's grace as the means of my salvation. Do we not nullify the law through faith? What does the Bible say, brothers and sisters? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, now, now there's another misunderstanding, and it's good for you guys to, to know this. Uh, we have here in the Bible 
some people that reason and say that the, the law was nailed to the cross. Was it nailed to the cross? Was it abolished at Christ's death? So where do they get these ideas? So let, let's see where they get these ideas. So here we have Colossians 2.14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the, the, the thing is, what was nailed to the cross? So, so it's interesting, that word there, handwriting of requirements, comes from a Greek word which is which means the record of our debts. The record of our debts. So, so I, know, I know in your countries, in Jamaica and, and Belize and some of our other countries, you can still go to that little convenience store down the block because they're like everywhere. I mean, there's like every single block someone has a store in their house. Is that the way it is in your country? Okay, so, so you go there, and if you have a good relationship with the owner, you can actually get things and not pay for them until later on. So they'll just write your name, and he took eggs, and he took some lettuce, and some cabbage. And, 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 and so it comes a day when you pay off, you know, what you owe. Well, that's what the Bible's talking about, okay? Herographos. That's the, that's the Greek term, herographos. Which means everything that has been recorded that you owe. That's what was taken away on the cross. The debts, what was recorded, your sins that were recorded, that was what was taken away. So look what this, this, this verse here says. This is from the New International Version, so this just clears up the air a little bit. When you were dead in sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having Canceled, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers of authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So that's what happened on the cross. So that's what was, was taken away. So we have it actually uh, here in Colossians 16, 17. It says, therefore, this is something else that was nailed to the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat, drink, or regard of religious festival, or new moon, or celebration, or Sabbath day. <gasps> oh, Sabbath day. Well, I don't see no Sabbath day in the Ten Commandments that was uh, a shadow of the things to come. So if we read this verse correctly, the shadow, the things that were to come, had to do with all the ceremonies, with all the festivities of the Jews that were pointing to Christ's death. The Ten Commandments were not pointing to Christ's death. The Ten Commandments is always pointing to his character. So here we have this, this, this text that sometimes mislead people. So it was, was nailed to the cross, was the decree of our sins, and also... It came to an end at the cross, the rituals and ceremonies which were shadow of the things to come. Then there's another parallel verse in Ephesians that leads a lot of people. It says the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It says that that was nailed to the cross. Okay. So what is he talking about? So I literally went to Bible commentaries, the serious scholars, non-Adventists, non-Adventists, to see what they say about this verse. Because these people that dedicated their life to theology... A lot of them are very honest. They're very sincere and they tell the truth. Look at this, this, this commentator. This does not refer 
Protestant theologian. This does not re refer to the moral law, which was not the cause of the alienation and which was not abolished by the death of Christ, but to the laws commanding sacrifices, festivals, fasts, etc., which constituted the uniqueness of the Jewish system. These were the occasion of the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, and these were abolished by the great sacrifice which the Redeemer made. And of course, when that was made, the purpose for which these laws were instituted was accomplished, and they ceased to be of value and to be binding. Amen. All right. So we know in the Old Testament we have the moral law, which is forever, okay, which we have studied about this morning. We have the civil laws that had to do with the Jewish society, and then we have the ceremonial laws, which ended at the cross. So the Bible says, 1 John 2, 4, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, oh, it's a liar, and the truth is not in him. So once again, what is the sealing agent? The Holy Spirit. What is the instrument? Oh, the Ten Commandments. And what is the mark that is impressed? The character of God. Now, did you know that Satan is also sealing his people? We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. And we're going to talk more about the seal of God too. But here we have Satan is also sealing his people. Revelation 13, 15 talks about this. And we, we, we refer to it as the, the mark of the beast. And those who receive the false seal, there is also a name on the forehead. What is the name on the forehead of the, of the lady we see, we see there in, 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 in Revelation 17? And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of abominations of the earth. So, the 144,000 sealed are reflecting what character? The character of God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. So, what seal will you receive? I want to end with this. God's or Satan's? So we have two seals in the book of Revelation, two marks, two characters, and two destinies. Every action we make every single day, the decisions that we make every single day, will determine our destiny. Our destiny. So we have to choose if we want to receive God's seal or Satan's seal. Don't forget the three meanings of God's seal. Property or ownership. Do you want to belong to God? You need God's seal. Okay? Covenant or commitment. That's, that's where baptism also comes in because you make a, a covenant. You make a commitment through baptism also. And, of course, the reproduction of character. Revelation is a message of hope. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to keep studying this marvelous book, a book of hope, the book of Revelation. Lord, we want to receive that seal. We want to belong to you. We want to make a commitment to you. And we want your character to be reflected in our lives. Help us, Lord, to receive your Holy Spirit, to follow his direction, to keep your commandments. And to honor you in such a way, Lord, that the people around us, that those that don't know you, may want to know you because they see you in us. Thank you, God, for this beautiful Sabbath. And we thank you for your blessing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.